Uh, I don't know how many of you have had this experience. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, different jobs that I've had in my life. Uh, starting, I think the first job I ever had, I worked at a florist when I was in high school. Uh, I worked in a, a restaurant when I was in college. I had a bunch of different little jobs. But I had a similar experience in a lot of them. And I was thinking really of my first kind of real job out of school was to work in an architecture firm. But on all these different jobs when you first start, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I mean, even in the simplest jobs you go in and you don't know how they work or the way they do things or what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to talk to. And so what ends up happening? I I vividly remember working in an architecture firm and I felt like all I did for months was just ask people questions. Like, how do we do this? And where do I find this? And how do we file this? And where does this go? And it's like I couldn't do anything without asking someone. And so literally it was like question after question after question. And so you had to get over real quickly that like admitting you don't know what you're doing and asking questions. And so over time, you would work at the job and maybe you'd start to ask less questions. And and probably after six months, I was just asking a couple a day. And after a year, it was maybe one or two a week. And you're starting to kind of figure it out. And I was thinking about that experience and how similar that is in a lot of ways uh, to our walk with the Lord at different seasons in our life. That when we become a new believer and God opens up our heart to see who he is and we're excited about what he is and there's so much we don't know and and we go to God's word and and hopefully we get plugged into a church and we start to learn and we're so excited and we have so many questions and so many things. But then over time as we spend time in God's word and and we read and different things and we we start to become comfortable. "Ah, I kind of got this figured out. I feel a little more like and, and then different seasons will come along. Sometimes it's difficult seasons. Something really hard will happen and it kind of alerts us to our need and we kind of go back to that. and We kind of have this up and down of seasons in our life at different times. But the truth is in those moments where we get kind of comfortable, just like you do in a job over time, I kind of know what I'm doing. If we ever find ourselves in that position with our relationship with the Lord, we kind of start to float. And what I've been saying the last few weeks as we've been talking about this series, just the beginning of the year of of our church covenant and what it means to be the local church wanting to grow as disciples and how discipleship is so important. One of the things I've been saying over and over is when we get to that place of kind of floating, there is no neutral in discipleship. You will be discipled by the culture. You will be discipled by the world. When we're not clinging in dependence to the Lord and who he is and the way he's revealed himself to us, other things start to come into that and we kind of start to float along. And what happens a lot of times in that is we start to get discipled by the world and we start to turn to what the world tells us will bring us joy and fulfillment and we can ever so subtly start to seek it in other things. But what I just read to you in in John chapter 15, as Jesus says, you'll never find the fullness of joy you were created for when that happens. When we start to let God kind of sit on the side or put him over in the corner or, or that's something I do one hour a week or a few minutes each day, or whatever it is, and we kind of push it off to the side, suddenly when we become comfortable like that, we're in danger of of seeking things that will never bring us fulfillment. And so today, I I want us, as we continue to think about our, our church covenant, the importance of what Jesus says here in John 15, of being completely dependent on him. And the way I want us to think about that is is in his word that he has revealed to us, and in our prayer life as we talk to God. And how important those are to everything that we do. 
And so when we, we've been talking about here our church covenant. Uh, if you haven't read through that recently, or if you're new or you're visiting or whatever it may be, you can get one on our welcome table out there. You actually can find it on our website too. It's right in the, our, under our beliefs. It's, it's on there. You can look at it whenever you want. But what we've been doing with this church covenant is just talking about the things that we are called to as a church, a local church that God calls us out with believers to be members of one another, to encourage one another, to walk that out together. And so when we say a covenant, it just means a promise. It's the things that we're promising to one another and we're seeking to grow in. And so today, as we talk about the importance of the word of God's word and prayer, it's kind of the foundation of everything we're talking about we're doing because all the other things we're talking about and and so far we've talked about holiness being called out of the world and and not in the world uh in the world but not of it as god has called us into this relationship so we want to pursue holiness we've talked about unity in our relationships we've talked about having uh deeper and deeper relationships discipling relationships and all these things that we've talked about we can't do any of these things as god calls us to without dwelling in his word and praying and, and, and talking to him regularly. None of these things will work. And so the next couple of weeks as we, we talk about giving and serving and evangelism and, and missions and the things that we want to be about as a church, we can't do any of those things if we're not abiding in his word. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 15. And so I want us just to think this morning about how important it is that Jesus says here, that you abide in me, and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a pretty huge statement. Apart from abiding in Jesus and clinging to him, we won't be able to do anything of eternal significance. We won't be able to live out the things that we're promising to each other that we're seeking to do. It's going to take complete dependence on him. And so really prayer and word is foundational to our church covenant. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've read through line by line and we've looked at different things. And I'm showing you uh, where that is found biblically. It's not our ideas. Nothing. I don't believe anything in our church covenant is stuff we've made up. It's things that God has clearly called us to. But today it's not really line by line. But I would just say to you, everything that we're talking about in our church covenant is going to be built on this idea of, of, of abiding in him through word and prayer. And so if you do look at our church covenant and different things, you know, right at the beginning, it talks about relying on his gracious aid and thinking about uh, how we would define that. And obviously that's Jesus and what he's come to do for us, that he's restored us this relationship with God. And in doing so, we are now indwelt by the person and work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who illuminates our hearts and our minds. But when I think about God's gracious aid as the Spirit works and he points us to Jesus and what God is doing, he does that through his word as he's revealed himself to us. He does that through prayer as he allows us to come directly to him and speak to him and we can come directly to him in all things. And so it's so important when we're thinking about all of these. We said last week we, uh, the idea that we would faithfully admonish and entreat one another that we would encourage one another and that we would speak the truth to each other. And I would just say to you, we can't do that if we're not rooted and grounded in God's word. Our wisdom, man's wisdom, will always fall short. And so if we're going to encourage one another and we're going to speak the truth and we're going to admonish one another, it's going to have to be rooted and grounded in God's word. And so like Paul writes uh, to younger pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And he says, God has given you his word, and he has revealed himself to you that you can be equipped. And so when we talk about admonishing and entreating one another and encouraging one another and going deeper into relationships, that's going to be built on what God has clearly revealed to us in his word. It won't work any other way. So the mission of our church, we say, is to make disciples to make disciples. We can't do that if we're not dwelling in God's word and praying regularly and seeking him. And so I just say to you, as we think about it this week, it's kind of upholding everything we're saying. You know, we say right down towards the end of our church covenant, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, its ordinances, its discipline and doctrines. And all of those things, again, we find in God's word. If we're going to uphold the doctrines of the church, the, the eternal truths, we find those in God's word. And so we have to be dwelling richly in God's word as, as a leadership in the church, but also as church members, if we're going to encourage one another in that. And so as we say that, uh, it's important that we hold fast to that word and prayer and all things or all the other things that we're talking about will quickly fall apart. And so what I want to do this morning as we think about that, as we focus on uh, the importance of, of God's word and, and prayer and our prayer life and everything that we're seeking to do as a local body, I, I want to just spend a few minutes with kind of an overview of Jesus' life. Looking at Jesus and the way God's word and prayer is absolutely essential to everything he did in his earthly ministry. See, when we look to Jesus, we see uh, God in the flesh. We see God himself. We see humanity perfected exactly the way God created us to be. Right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he shows us exactly how to walk with the Father. Exactly how to follow the Spirit in all things. Exactly how to do it. And what I want to just show you is the importance of God's word and prayer was in Jesus' life. In everything he did. And so when Jesus says here in John chapter 15 in verses 5 to 8. I am the vine and you are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. You can do nothing If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And Jesus is talking about abiding in the word. Jesus is the word. The word made flesh. And he has inspired us. God has spoken and the spirit has has inspired the writing of his word, that Jesus is the word of God. And he's saying, you abide in me and I in you, and you'll be able to do, bear much fruit. And then you get to the very end of the passage here in verse 16 and 17. He says, I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And he says there, that, the, that when we're abiding in him and we're speaking to the Father and we're, we're rooting and grounding ourselves in Jesus and what he's done and who he is, that God's going to do incredible things in and through us. And we're going to have this relationship with the Father where we're speaking to him about everything. He's saying about praying. And so I want to show you how when Jesus is there, and, and by the way, John 15, upper room, Last few moments Jesus has with the disciples before his crucifixion. We looked at John 17 a couple weeks ago. This is in the same 
setting, same place, a few minutes before. These are going together. And as he's saying all that, he's telling them these things. And it's so important what he's saying. But when we go back and we look at his life, we see that that's exactly what he did in everything. And so I'm going to jump around from a few different passages. I'll tell you where we are if you want to read along with me. But we're going to hit on a couple different things. And so as we think about Jesus' life and how he models exactly what he says to us in John 15, I want to start in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 and following there. Uh, Pew Bible, it's 1070. But in Luke chapter 2, it's the first time we see Jesus out of, uh, outside of his birth as a baby. And it's the only snapshot we have between his birth when he is a child to when his public ministry begins. And he's 12 years old, and it tells us that he and his family have gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so each year they would make this journey, and they would go up to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, and they were traveling as a group of people that are coming from where they live and going to Jerusalem. And it says they celebrate Passover, and then they go and they leave, and they head off on their way to go home. And on their journey on the way back, it says they were looking around, and all of a sudden they couldn't find Jesus. Where is he? I thought he was with our friends or with family or whatever. If you have kids, maybe you've had this experience. You go, hey, he's good. He's with them. And then all of a sudden you realize you don't know where they are. And so that's kind of what they go through with Jesus. And so all of a sudden they kind of go, oh, no, where is he? And they go back to Jerusalem. And and Luke gives us just this snapshot from Jesus' childhood when he's 12 years old. And it says they went back and they found him. This is verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And so this first time that we see Jesus outside of a baby is he's sitting there with the religious leaders of the day having these discussions over God's word. And you see it right there from the beginning. By the way, I always thought this was interesting. I had a professor who pointed this out in seminary. They say to him, why did you do this to us? Son, why have you treated us so? Right? Why did you wander off like this? And I had a professor in seminary that said, here's Jesus without sin. But I want you to understand that he was fully human. And he was an adolescent at one point. And a 12-year-old doesn't think my parents are going to be worried about me. I'll just go over here and do this thing. And when my professor pointed that out, I always thought that was interesting. It's kind of a side note, but that here is Jesus as an adolescent. He's not in sin. He's doing what a 12-year-old does. I'm just going to go and do this thing that makes sense to me, and I'm not worried about what my parents are thinking. And so it's a good reminder even with our children, developmentally appropriate where they are and the way we respond to them. But this picture here of Jesus that we see is he's, he's in the Word as a 12-year-old. And he's asking these questions and he's seeking the Lord. Right after that, Luke tells us that he begins to grow in stature and knowledge and wisdom. And he's doing so because he's rooted and grounded in the word. And you see that right at the beginning. The very next thing in Jesus' life we see is he's preparing for his public ministry. You can find it in Matthew chapter 4. And it's what we call the temptation of Jesus where Jesus goes out. But when you read in Matthew chapter 4, it says that he went out. And he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. And this is kind of the first thing that Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are showing us Jesus' life. The first things that tell us of what he's doing before his public ministry begins. 
And Jesus goes out and he fasts and he prays for 40 days and 40 nights. And I'm always struck by that. That as Jesus is preparing for this temptation, as the, as the Holy Spirit leads him out to be tempted, the way he prepares for that, the way he's preparing for his ministry, is he spends 40 days in fasting and praying. And the importance that you see is Jesus' preparation. But then if you're to read through that, that uh, scenario there of the temptation, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And three different times he says to him, there's a lot we could say about the temptation of Jesus and how Jesus is undoing the work, our sinful work and setting things right. And we start to see that right at the beginning of his public ministry. But the point I want to make here and just point out to you is that as Satan comes to him, the way Jesus answers every temptation, all times he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he, pre, he, he turns back and quotes scripture to Satan. In fact, if you look closely, there's times where Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. And he takes it and he twists it and he distorts it just a little. And Jesus goes, no, actually, you've missed this part. And he says back to him. And you see right there Jesus answering temptation in his life with God's word. And so the preparation he has for his ministry in his entire life, you see this pattern right there and it's word and prayer. 40 days and 40 nights, he's fasting and praying. And then as the temptation comes, he turns and speaks God's word back to Satan in every single instance. And so you'll start to see as you walk through the Gospels, uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus has this uh, religious leaders kind of attacking him, which happens often. They come to him and kind of push on him and his understanding and why are you not doing it the way we do it and why like this? And so in Mark chapter 7, you have them come up and accuse his disciples of not following some of their purity laws. And they're not washing their hands right. They're not doing things this way. And so they come up and they kind of push on Jesus. And why are your disciples not doing this? And so what does Jesus do? But he does what he always does in these scenarios. You see him throughout the Gospels where they come and they challenge him. And he points them back to God's word. He does it over and over again. And so here in Mark 7, they come to him. And so he responds by quoting Isaiah. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And so he says, you're making all these rules and you're following to your own ideas and these things and you're missing the heart of what God's word says and you're not, you're not seeing it rightly. And so he, he speaks back to him and he shows them what God's word says. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. So what is Jesus doing? They're twisting and distorting the word of God and he goes back and he says, no, 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 this is what it says. And this is what God was after. And this is how he wants your heart. And he continues to point back to the word of God in everything. Now he's also, as he goes, showing them how all of it points to himself how he is the word and how all these things are coming to culmination in him. But in every one of these instances, you, you go, it's an interesting study to do, to read through the Gospels and see how Jesus responds to the religious leaders of the day when they attack him. It's often something like, you don't know the power of God and the word of God. And then he speaks back to him. 
or he'll just say it is written and he'll turn around and say God's word right back to him. And so what you see is Jesus doing this over and over again. Uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, somebody yells out from the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus responds, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And he continues to point everyone back to God's word, knowing that all of it is going to point forward to him, that every single one of the things in God's word is finding its culmination in Jesus. And so he's continuing to do that over and over again. And so he has this commitment to the word in all things. But it's not just to the word, but you also see the same with Jesus and his commitment to prayer and finding time in all things and in all ways. Uh, we looked at just a couple weeks ago, if you're with us, John chapter 17, which happens right after 15 that we just read in the same moments in the upper room. And John chapter 17 is what we often refer to as the high priestly prayer. And it's right before Jesus goes out to be arrested and then crucified and he's with his disciples. And what does he do? He prays for him. He prays not only for them, but for us, because he's praying for those that will come to know through what they do and their word. But he prays for his disciples. And you see that. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. But you also see throughout his life him praying over and over in all things. And it's this pattern that you see. And so it's not just the word, but it's also praying. You could go back to the temptation, 40 days and 40 nights. He fasts and prays. Uh, you could go to the, the naming of the 12 disciples. We talked about that uh, last week. And in the naming of the 12 disciples, it says that he went off and he prayed all night. He seeks the Father and he prays and then he comes down and he names the twelve. And so you see this pattern in all these things over and over again. It tells us as the crowds get bigger, I'm always struck by this, like Luke chapter 5. It says, and, and now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And I'm struck by that in this. It makes me think of a quote, an old quote from Martin Luther. I'm paraphrasing here, but Martin Luther, great reformer, used to say that I have so much to do tomorrow. I am so busy and I have all these things that I must attend to. So I'm going to get up really early and pray for four hours before I do anything else. And you read that and you go, whoa. Well, this is what Jesus did. As the crowds pushed in, and more and more people demanded his time, and more people were pulling at him. It says he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so what you see, the pattern throughout his life and all things, in busyness and preparation and difficult decisions in the hardest times and all things, it's God's word, speaking God's word, and pulling away to pray, to seek the Lord. And so you see this over and over. But I want to give you one more snapshot here. Just in the last few hours of Jesus' life, if we just were to look at the last, the, probably the most difficult time as he's preparing, he knows the cross is imminent. He knows about to lay his life down. He knows he's going to bear the wrath of God and all these things. If you just go back and you look at maybe the last 12 hours, maybe 18 hours before he's crucified, and you look at that, what you have is, is John 17 that we talked about, him praying for the disciples there in the upper room. And as they finish praying, they get up and he says, we must be going. And they get out and they walk out. Matthew 26 tells us that as they go out, they're singing a hymn. So they get up, they finish celebrating Passover. Jesus has prayed for them. They go out and they're singing. 
Most scholars believe they're singing Psalm 115 to 18. That's traditionally what was sung at the end of Passover. But they go out and they're singing God's word and they're singing God's word together over what is happening. By the way, we won't go through it right now, but go read Psalm 118. And think about Jesus as he's on his way to the cross. Singing God's word, letting God's word stand over him. Letting God's word make sense out of everything that's happening in his life at this moment. And here God has inspired his word that when Jesus is now in the flesh, that God's word can stand over him and encourage him in this. But they sing these hymns together, Psalm 115 to 118, singing it over. Right after that, Jesus quotes to his disciples, Zechariah, verse 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. As he's telling them, I'm about to be rested and you're all going to leave me. But he quotes scripture to tell them that because he's making sense out of what is happening right now in the most difficult times in his life by what God's word says. And so he prays, they sing the word together, he's quoting scripture to them, they go off into the garden of Gethsemane and he says, would you stay up and pray with me? And he goes a little further and he falls down on his face and he begins to plead with the father. And so you, again, see him covering everything in prayer. In the most difficult moments, he's praying. And he's praying for all the things that's about to happen. But then he gets up from there and they come in and they arrest him and they take him away. He has a sham of a trial before Caiaphas and and the religious leaders of the day. And they're accusing him of claiming to be the Messiah. And they're hitting him and spitting in his face and they're saying all these things to him. Are you the Messiah? And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64, Jesus said to them, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so he paraphrases Psalm 110 and verse one to them. And that's how he answers them. You will see the son of man at the right hand of the father. Again, scripture coming out of his mouth in every moment and in every way. He goes to the cross after his trial before Pilate and the the Roman leaders and they, they say he will be crucified and they take him off. And as they do, they bring him and they hang him on the cross and he's between two criminals. And the first thing that's recorded that he says is he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so literally as they're killing Jesus, he's talking to the Father. He continues to pray in all things. Shortly after that, he'll cry out and quote Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Alerting them to what's happening. If you read the rest of Psalm 22, you see that, yes, it describes perfectly what is happening on the cross as Jesus is being crucified, but it ends with that God is just and he will be honored in all of this. And Jesus is reminding himself and those around that that is true as he quotes scripture. And then the last thing that's recorded that he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gives up his life and he bows his head. And in everything you see all the way through, Jesus, word and prayer, word and prayer, in every single part of it, in every moment and in every place. And so I want us just to think about that together for just a moment. Just consider the truth of what Jesus says to us in John chapter 15. But then when we shine a light on his life, how he lives that out. And I would just say to you this. We all need God's word to stand over our life in every single circumstance, just as Jesus does. Why would we ever think 
that we can do this life and seek to honor God and make disciples and do the things that God's called us to and not be rooted and grounded in the word and continual in prayer when that's the way we saw Jesus doing it. If Jesus desperately needed to pray in all things, if Jesus was always dwelling in the scripture in all things, why would we think we could do it without doing those things? And so we desperately need God's word to stand over us in any and everything. I started as I was thinking about that and and then to say, well, and particularly now, right? Our, Our world is crazy and we feel the tension of all the things going on and so much misinformation and different information. We're trying to make sense of things. But the truth is we've always needed God's word to stand over us. There's never been a time when we didn't. We just maybe feel it more now. But a a friend of mine, a a pastor here in in Acts 29, James, uh, said, uh, I saw something he wrote on social media the other day. And he said this. He said, if we were to step back from the noise and competing narratives, which are confusing and disorienting, the word of God uncomplicates things for us. What if God is liberating us by his clarifying word in our crumbling world? I thought, what a cool way to say it, that God's word uncomplicates things for us. Instead of letting all the information and disinformation and competing information and all the noise and all the things, if we step back and we go, I'm just going to seek the Lord. I'm going to let what he says stand over me in all things. It does greatly uncomplicate things. And so all of us desperately need God's word standing over us. But then I'd also say to you, that's why we do things or seek to do things the way we do as a church. When we talk about the local church and our covenant and holding to our disciplines and doctrines and those things, that's why we seek to do exegetical preaching. Exegetical just meaning explaining or drawing out of the text what it says. And so I hope you've heard me say this before. For years I've said this. John Piper used to say all the time, he was a big influence on me in my life. He's an excellent exegetical preacher and john piper would say i want you to see what i got and how i got it and so that's one of our convictions here in our preaching and teaching it's why we go through books of the bible that's why we're going to pick back up in romans 9 and finish the book out uh, at the beginning of february i want you to see what i got and how i got it that it's not my ideas but it rests in what god has said and so we want to be exegetical we want to draw out the meaning and show right and it's so important that we do The opposite of being exegetical or exegesis is eisegesis, where we put our meaning into it, which is what Satan's doing in the temptation of Jesus. It's what some of the religious leaders were doing as they challenged him. He goes, no, 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 that's not what it says. That's not what. And so we want to be exegetical because we let God's word stand over us in all things. But then we also want to, as we seek to do discipleship, as we are members of one another, Bible study and spending time in God's word is not just a thing that we take up in isolation on our own. We are saved into a family. We are to be members of one another. And as we come to God's word, we encourage one another with it. But we also study it together. And we want to be careful that we're doing exegesis and not eisegesis. And we need one another speaking truth into our life. And so as we spend time in the word, it's not just me and God, although it's going to be that as well. But it's also going to be done in community because we need one another. We need to speak the truth. We need to entreat and admonish one another in all things. 
And so here's where I want to end this morning, just with a, a, a challenge for all of us. Right? When we look at Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and we see his need of word and prayer in his life, I just want to ask that question. Why do we think we can get by without it? And if we take Jesus at his word in John chapter 15, we can't. Not if we want to bear fruit that God has designed us for. Not if we want to find the fullness of joy that he has made us for. We can't. He says you won't. And so we desperately need God's word to stand over us. We need to be talking to him in every moment at all times, praying without ceasing. And so as we do, I would just ask you this. What is your plan to do so? Sometimes we talk about this. We go, yes. If you're, if you're a believer and you're a Christian, you've heard me say this. You've heard this your whole life. You need to spend time in the word. You need to spend time in prayer. We need to seek the Lord. And so my next question would be to you, well, what's your plan to do that? And not only what is your plan to do that, but who are you going to share it with? It's easy to go, yes, I'm going to do that. And you make a little note, I'm going to start a Bible reading plan and I'm going to spend more time. And then you walk out and life hits you and things are busy and it's hard. And so I would say to you, what is your plan and who are you going to share it with? And then the very last thing as we end this morning, let me just remind you of this. You are not saved by your Bible reading plan. You're not saved by how good you are at praying. Thanks be to God. We are saved by what Jesus has done for us. And it's all his doing and every bit of it. But when we see that and we recognize that and we see our identity in him, it draws us into him. We desperately need him in all things. And although we aren't saved by our Bible reading plan, he meets us there. We're not saved in our prayer life, but he meets us in it. And so we want to be honoring him in all things. And so as we leave this morning, I would just challenge you, as we talked about discipleship being this challenge that's part of it, how are we going to do that? And who are we going to share that with? So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth that you love us, that you have come to us and revealed yourself to us. I thank you for the way that you came to us in the flesh and showed us how to live this life and what it looks like and what it means to honor and seek you in all things. And so I pray that you would impress upon us afresh today our deep need for you in everything, to spend time in your word, to seek you in all things. I pray that you would meet us in the midst of that. We thank you. Uh, for your word. We thank you for the ways that you love us. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all of it in his precious name. Amen.